In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. I'm in VinePair's New York City headquarters. I'm Tim McCurdy. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Tim, you know, we're recording this the same day as the uh, previous episode, in case anyone couldn't tell from the way my uh, <laughs> voice still sounds. I, I promise, I well, shouldn't say I promise. I sincerely hope that by the time all of you are hearing this, I'm not still sick. Uh, but, you know, you never know. Joys of fatherhood and all that, as uh, or parenthood, as our normal host can attest to soon, I'm sure. They will be dealing with plenty of the disgusting germs that their children will be bringing to their house for years and years and years. I got to ask something from you guys, and and this goes out to Joanna and Adam as well, whenever they eventually, if they eventually listen to this, (laughs) I got to ask that this doesn't become a parent podcast, you know. You know, I don't want every every start of the week episode to be Monday. What did you drink over the weekend? Uh, well, actually, I didn't drink anything because I'm not getting a lot of sleep and this and that. I'm completely sympathetic to, to parenthood, of course, and very excited for everyone. But we can't let this become a parent-only podcast. Uh, oh, I trust me. I would It would be my preference to almost never talk about my kids on here. But <laughs> I do think you might have to allow a little grace period for our new parents because... When you're in that stage, it's kind of hard to avoid doing anything but talking about your kids because they're all you mm. think about. So anyhow, let's let's talk about something more germane to this podcast. Tim, what have you drank lately that uh, excited you? That's a great question, Zach. I've had a lot of martinis, but that's par for the course. Um, <laughs> yeah, you let us know when you haven't had a martini recently. <laughs> that's true. I haven't had a martini in three days. What's going on? On that subject, though, I it, last Monday's episode about the martini that we covered, I was so sad to later in that week learn of this new hot Chicago hot dog martini thing that's happening that's getting a lot of coverage. Um, Not for me. Uh, It's just a shame (laughs) that we weren't able to include that in the episode, but maybe someone listened to the episode and they're like, okay, we need to take this to the next level. I don't know. Um, All of which is a roundabout way of saying this week, I recently enjoyed a new, to me at least, rhubarb-based Amaro. It's called Amaro Santoni. And I don't mean to do this to plug Cocktail College podcast, but one of our guests is involved in that and brought it on during a chat about the Garibaldi. And rhubarb is just an ingredient that I love. I think it's a very quintessentially British ingredient too, or maybe we're just trying to co-op that, but uh, I love rhubarb as an ingredient. I love when rhubarb season comes in. So trying this Amaro was, uh, yeah, it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Very cool. Yeah, no, uh, I I like rhubarb a lot. I have a lot of fun memories of it from uh, being a kid, which I guess kind of depressing because like rhubarb isn't that exciting as a kid, but uh, You know, strawberry rhubarb is a very common flavor combo here, probably in the UK as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Love that. Obviously, the strawberry helps. But uh, I also really like it as as like just a a salad ingredient, Uh, you know, very thinly shaved, uh, kind of like you would with celery. Just like the the tanginess of it is very enjoyable to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you finely shave it, you kind of avoid that horrible fibrous quality that that makes normally the way you enjoy rhubarb being, you know, cooked in some form. So cool. That sounds great. Is that something that's like, is that a, it's, so you said the guest was involved with it, but is it an Italian Amaro or is it a domestic Amaro? It's an Italian Amaro. Um, It's based in, I believe, uh, Tuscany and it is available here in the United States. And, you know, it has this very vibrant pink color and that oftentimes will get you a little worried, especially when it comes to the Amaro category, because you're like, well, this isn't generally a space where 
the color is the first thing to invite you to the drinks? So is this like a um, you know coloring situation that's going on? But actually, they use hibiscus to get this that that real nice pink shade. And what I love about it is that it smells immediately. Like an amaro, and not yeah. like some rhubarb liqueur. Okay, but the rhubarb notes are in there, and I, I think it's over thirty botanicals, as these things usually are, anyway. So, you know, the fact of everything that was advertised does come across in the glass is wonderful. That's awesome. How about yourself? What have you been drinking apart from tea, honey, and? <laughs> <laughs> so before I got before I got sick. Uh, a couple of things. So uh, it was actually really fun. I was up in Bellingham, which is a city about 80 miles north of Seattle, uh, where my, my mom lives for her birthday uh, the previous weekend. And up there, visited a friend's beer bar, great new beer bar called Ponderosa, uh, and had a couple of great Bellingham beers, uh, in particular a uh, smoked Hellas lager from Wander Brewing. You know, the Hellas in general, just a, a style of you know German lager that I really enjoy. You know, not too distinct from, you know, many other German uh, lighter style lagers, but the smoked barley component just adds a slight element of complexity that those beers sometimes lack a touch. Um, you know, they're so clean and crisp, but that's a, a nice thing. But to add just a, a, another note in there, it was uh, kind of fun. And then for my mom's actual birthday, we had, uh, I brought a bottle of uh, Chateauneuf de Pop from uh, Claude de Lour, Claude de Lour de Pop. So, 09. So it was kind of interesting to me. Older bottles of Chateauneuf de Pop have been kind of like hit or miss in my experience. I think it's a style that uh, uh, lately maybe has moved back towards a little more balance, but definitely went through a 90s, 2000s kind of infatuation with extreme ripeness, uh, probably driven by reviews and stuff like that, scores that that really prized you know the extreme ripeness that in the Southern Rhone is possible for, for Grenache in particular. But uh, this was surprisingly, well, I mean, not surprisingly, I guess, but pleasantly still kind of balanced, not overly kind of stewed fruit and just kind of lacking in, uh, you know, kind of herbal notes. So, yeah, it was really tasty. My stepdad had made some barbecue, so it was kind of a good fit with that. And, you know, my mom is kind of a lightweight. So after a glass and a half, she was uh, really celebrating. So, you know, it was good times. Nice, Zach, just there ripping on your kids earlier and now ripping on your mom. Unbelievable. I thought this was a family podcast. It apparently is a family podcast. Well, all of us all of us have moms one way or another, so yes, you know, a little no. more universal there. Anyhow, so for today's episode, um, you know, we're going to kind of talk about uh, a piece that was on the site recently talking about this kind of ongoing struggle between Italy and Australia around the, the term Prosecco. And so I want to set the stage here a tiny bit. So... A thing that people now may be coming to the wine industry or familiarity with Prosecco may not be aware of is that until fairly recently, like until 2009, the term Prosecco was used both for the style of wine that we now think of, but also the variety that was used to make it. And basically what happened was the Italians realized, well, shit, Prosecco is really popular. And yet the way that laws typically work in terms of especially trade agreements, uh, global trade agreements, is that if you you can protect the name of a region or an appellation, but you can't protect a variety. That's why you can make Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Noir anywhere. You can call it Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir. You don't have to, you know, call it whatever else you might choose to call it. You can't call a red wine you make from Pinot Noir, you can't call it Burgundy. You can't call a red wine you make from Cabernet Sauvignon Margot or Bordeaux or whatever. So the Prosecco producers basically were like, well, shit, we got to fix this, right? We got to figure out a way for us to protect the term Prosecco. So we're going to call, we're going to use a more 
at the time, obscure synonym for the variety, glera. We're going to say that's what the grape is now. And Prosecco is a protected term for wine from this area made in this style. And no one else can use the term Prosecco. Which, like, you know, for, uh, on the one hand, you go like, okay, I guess it kind of makes sense. Except if you're an Australian producer who planted a bunch of Prosecco, now technically maybe Glera, and produced wine and labeled it Prosecco, and are being told basically in the kind of crux of this argument that you have to come up with a different term for this wine that you've invested a lot into. And to note, as noted in this piece, which I should mention, written by Clay Dillo, ran on the site last week, is a big part of white wine slash sparkling wine production in Australia. This isn't like three producers who kind of on a whim were like, let's plant some Prosecco. It's the second most important white variety in Australia. And so, you know, for one, this is just a big battle, right? The EU on behalf of Italy versus Australia. And on the other hand, and I think as this will feed into, it kind of comes back to this question of like, how do you define what a wine style is and how do you just say, uh, you know, how do you protect it or should these things be protected? So Tim, you, you edited this piece. What are your first thoughts? My first thoughts, I guess, were the, um, yeah, I thought Clay did a wonderful job with the story. And I also want to, you know, give a shout out to Vinepair co-founder Josh Mallon, who came across this as often is the case, you know, we, we, we publish these things and, um, oftentimes Josh is the first person to have the idea. So wonderful work on his part. My first thoughts are, I had no idea there were people in Australia making Prosecco, and I had no idea this case was ongoing. Um, you know, we published this last week, and it is, there does seem to be conclusion maybe happening, or developments within the case will be happening soon, so it is newsworthy. But this thing has been going on for a while now, so those were just my first thoughts, that A, this is very strange, and then B, I guess I got to thinking, what makes this a very, very interesting story is not only that, to my mind, there are no significant precedents of similar things happening, but B, that this is probably largely also due to the success of Prosecco in recent years, right? Like this wouldn't happen for, say, I don't know, Sanso, right? Like we're not we're not going to see this happening with a grape that relatively few people outside of wine lovers know or enjoy, right? Yeah. Like this speaks to how lucrative Prosecco has become and it seems to be that that is a big part of the story. For sure. And I think it's also part of it that you know, what people are really latching onto with Prosecco is the style of wine more than the specific characteristics of the variety that goes into it. And so while Glera itself as a variety has some characteristics that lend it to making Prosecco well, it's certainly possible that you can make a similar styled wine other places using other varieties. And people do. Obviously, the success of Prosecco has spawned many imitations, not just, you know, kind of the ones in Australia that I, like you, was sort of somewhat unfamiliar with. In fact, I think there's a lot that goes on in Australia because of the nature of their wine industry that just doesn't make it to American shores uh, or onto our radar. But also that, you know, there just there aren't as many places that you can think of where the the style of wine and the variety uh, share a name. You know, again, this this is this is just sort of a unique circumstance, but also kind of like I don't know how to describe it other than just sort of like it's a little bit of a like uh, 
case where the Italians, they sort of realized that they had screwed up and tried to kind of rectify it. Yeah. But it's a little bit of a like, well, okay. I mean, like, for example, to provide context. So one of the long, longstanding points of contention for uh, this sort of discussion between the EU and the U.S. and a lot of these um, kinds of discussions is about the pre- existence of California champagne. And the U.S. has kind of for a long time stood up to – has sort of protected the rights of producers in California to that have historically made California champagne, mostly Corbell, to continue to do so, even though the EU obviously – has a you know a strong interest in limiting the sales of anything that's labeled champagne that isn't from champagne but at least there you can plausibly and reasonably say champagne is a region describes a kind of wine made in that region and it's if you buy into the argument in the first place that it should be possible to sort of effectively globally trademark the names of or you know protect the names of regions associated with wines then champagne is a natural choice and I think it's, you know, because there's no champagne grape, the, the, there's no kind of point of conflict there. Mm-hmm. And I think that the thing that's raised in this piece that I think is really interesting is, okay, so the Italians, you know, in this case, the Prosecco producers wanted to protect Prosecco. They had to change the name of the variety to be able to argue credibly that it was a distinctive thing. But what's to stop them, and indeed, as they are trying to do in some cases, from, you know, continuing to be more aggressive? I mean, in the end... Uh, there aren't a lot of great other examples of this other than that they are trying to also you see some people uh, or they have, they have sort of successfully argued at least within the EU that the variety vermentino should only be able to be called a vermentino if it's italian so even though more vermentino is grown in france than in italy <laughs> in france they now are required to call it roll which is a local synonym which is fine but vermentino has more cachet these days and if a producer in France wants to use the name vermentino shouldn't they be able to the origins of varieties are hard to pin down in a lot of cases you know many of the varieties that are grown in Europe may have origins in another country um you know again it gets into a messy world very quickly and you know again kind of comes back to this question of like I think it's fine to say that names, as we discussed before, like Burgundy or Barolo, those are names where the variety obviously is critically important to those, but so far no one has tried to argue that you can only grow Pinot Noir or Nebbiolo in those places, or call it Pinot Noir or Nebbiolo. And it's very funny to me that the Europeans, who for generations at this point, have argued that what really matters is the place, not the variety. It's why varietal labeling in Europe is still relatively rare in most places, especially unless they're looking at the export market. To now kind of come back and say, actually, no, varieties are what's important. We should be able to protect those as well. I mean, it's just kind of ludicrous to me. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it really highlights something that I wanted to mention here, too. So, can we be real for a second here, Zach? Please. When we're, you know, let's let's be real on a few things. But first of all, you talk about that question of variety versus place. Now, I've got the article up here in front of me. And this is a quote from one of the producers. I don't want to call them out. People can go and find the article. But the, the quote here says, In my mind, Glera is one of the most delicate grapes in the world in terms of flavor. And then they go on to add, These flavors are really influenced a lot by the era in which the wines are cultivated. Uh, So this is a topic of, you know, what we're talking about here is terroir. Zach, 
how many bottles of Prosecco on the market that retail for 10 to 15 bucks and are being dumped into mimosas are people picking up the nuances of terroir? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, I think the, the, overarching conversation around terroir is a fun one and you know a little bit kind of ends up being you get out of it what you want to get out of it in general but i do think that it's true that you know if you look at the large-scale production of prosecco it's pretty hard to argue in my eyes that that process preserves terroir in the same way that the way that grand cru burgundy or you know barolo or or even to be fair docg prosecco is made it's just, it's not aiming at the same thing. I mean, I, I think it's fine for, I, I can certainly understand, you know, very much so, the desire of these producers to protect the term Prosecco. I don't think it's a gross sort of uh, argument that a sparkling wine made from the same variety from a different place should have to find a different name. I mean, I guess it's certainly the case that the producers in Australia weren't training on the fame of the Prosecco grape you know, they were trading on the fame of Prosecco wine, which is fair also. I suspect that, you know, if you gave them the their druthers, people in the, the Burgundian producers would happily take a monopoly on the word Pinot Noir at this point because it's so popular, right? The, the variety is so well known. And then if anyone else who grew Pinot Noir anywhere else, or let's say outside of maybe the historic European regions even, because obviously Pinot Noir, as some of you might know, is has for many, many, many years been grown in uh, Italy and in Germany and some other places too. So it's not as if it's an exclusively French or even Burgundian thing. But nonetheless, if they were to say to all producers in the US and Australia and uh, South America and etc. Well, now you can't call it Pinot Noir, come up with your other name uh, with your own name <laughs> for this variety. You know, that would cause a lot of consternation for producers here because they count on the recognizability of the variety as a huge selling point. And in fact, I think in a lot of ways, as I was kind of getting at before, you know, European producers, the European wine industry kind of forced other wine regions down this path by saying you can't use our place names. Our place names are sacrosanct. You can't use the term Burgundy to sell your wine anymore. You can't you you know you just you can't use the word Chablis to sell your wine anymore. These are specific places where wine comes from, and if you 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 just we have to be able to protect those. And I'm broadly sympathetic to that idea. I don't mm -hmm. like the idea of buying a white wine from California that's called Chablis. I think you know you can call it Chardonnay, which is the grape in Chablis, and that's what producers now do. But I think if you then say, well, actually, Chardonnay is only a French grape or whatever, a European grape, and if you grow it anywhere else, you no longer, not only can't call it the place name that you may be aspiring to to sort of model your wines after, but you also can't call it the variety. Like, that is taking things several steps too far. I also don't think that will ever be accepted by anyone outside of the EU. I just, I think there's no, you know, it would be a complete abandonment of your domestic wine industry to agree to a trade agreement where producers had to, you know, even if it was only for export, had to strip the varietal labeling off their wines and, again, come up with just another, I don't even know what uh, you could call it. It's not like you even have a handy synonym in, in your domestic, you know, in your local language. Like, so many of these varieties, we only know through the French or Italian or Spanish name for the variety because that's how they came to the countries where they're not planted. Yeah, I I think you're right. 
we're not going to get to a situation where that scenario is going to happen, but you could see how that would be the, you know, logical, not actually entirely illogical, but the the next step in this process. Like that's what it could spur on. And I think that's the thing about this story that we're talking about today in the situation, which is that this actually has nothing really to do with wine. This is a story about trade and about money um, and, and, and purely that alone. And I'm not inclined to take either person's side. I mean, I do somewhat sympathize with the Australians who, as you said, planted those vines a long time ago when the grape was still recognized via the name Prosecco rather than Glera. So I do have some sympathy there. But I also understand the the knock-on effect this could have and the, and the precedence it could set. But I do want to say here, I'm an impartial person in this case. But I do have maybe a devil's advocate argument here when it comes to what we've seen otherwise in the Prosecco space. So on the one hand, we have um, a region as part of a country, as part of a group of nations that does not want other people, other countries to use the term Prosecco because of this terroir-driven wine that they have that can only be made in one place in the world. Okay, that's fine. Then on the other hand, I see because we've recently done our Prosecco roundup, so we had a lot of great Prosecco coming through here at the Vine Pair office. I see a number of American brands that have Proseccos. I see Josh Sellers Prosecco. Great choice, by the way. I see Vera Wang has a Prosecco. Now, Vera Wang is, I would imagine for most people that know her, not associated mostly with Italy. Actually, I don't know anything about fashion, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we need I, I don't for this think one. so. I don't right? know. Yeah, yeah, we need to add him back for this one. But I can say this: the fine folks over there at Josh Sellers, you know, you see the you see the Netflix ads. This is a very, very America forward wine brand. So we can assume they're probably sourcing their product and bottling and selling it on the US market. Great. If Prosecco is a region and Italy is a nation is so worried about there being confusion over where the real Prosecco comes from, why would you let an American brand, a very recognizable American brand such as Josh Sellers, sell a Prosecco? Because surely there's some confusion there. Like, oh, is this California Prosecco? I know, I know Josh is all American. Um, or maybe is this just about money? Well, I have a surprise for you, Tim. Most of the Prosecco industry is mostly about money. I mean, <laughs> it, it's it's an inescapable reality that the overwhelming majority of Prosecco is it's an incredibly commercialized, industrialized process and product. And that doesn't make it bad. I think Prosecco is great in a lot of ways. But it's true that, you know, it is a little bit hard on the on one side to say, to listen to or to read about these producers being up in arms about the use of the term Prosecco in in Australia, where I think the overwhelming majority of the Prosecco is a domestic product, it's not like it's really competing on the global stage with right, Italian yeah. Prosecco. And yet, yes, see all these deals where it's obviously, you know, there's the anecdote that Clay relates in the piece about, you know, Paris Hilton's Prosecco, uh, you know, rich Prosecco. Not her, I mean, she endorsed it. I don't think it was her brand. Maybe she owns it. I don't know. Um, and many others, you know, you mentioned a couple now. There are many more producers or many more uh Prosecco's now on the market that have, you know, an American name attached to them. And it's just the case of like, 
yeah, you know, you guys are a little bit talking out of both sides of your mouth here. If you really care about preserving the Italianness of Prosecco, then it perhaps would behoove you to, as a group, sort of get the word out that, like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Conversely, if Prosecco is about, you know, monetizing the term as any way you can, then, you know, maybe this isn't the place to get too up in arms. Yeah, and, and also you look at the, those markets where... Prosecco has traditionally done so well, I would imagine off the top of my head, beyond Italy, they are Britain and, you know, the United Kingdom and the United States. Yep. Um, both countries in which European wine is overwhelmingly easier to access than Australian wine. For sure. Now, there are good ties between the US and the UK, but look, just from a financial standpoint, I can't imagine a world in which those Australian producers are able to compete with with those from Italy and in in the UK market, perhaps, and certainly not in the US market. You certainly, with uh, the UK as a market for Australian wine, there is, I think, a strong market in some ways for yeah. Australian wine in the UK. But it's really centered around the kind of you know red wines that you know the Shirazes, the the big red wines, the Cabs, etc. That that are more commonly associated with Australia and the sort of average consumer's mind. I don't think there's a huge market for comparably priced or more expensive Prosecco from from Australia, when especially in the UK, Italy's right there. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. It's it's a lot easier to get wine from Italy to the UK. Or, well, okay, maybe not post Brexit. Slightly I actually harder don't than know. it used to be. Yeah, but you know, okay, but 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 at this point, the consumer preference is well established. So maybe you know whatever. But again, it comes back to this last piece. I think is the last thing I want to mention before we wrap up here, which is that it does also speak to this ongoing struggle that, in particular, I think sparkling wine regions face, which is sort of getting people to understand that whether it's Prosecco, whether it's Champagne, whether it's some others, that there there is a place tied to these wines and that there is, you know, that that place of production is relevant to the story. And again, maybe that is a slightly more compelling argument or easier argument to make in the case of champagne, though there's plenty of large-scale production champagne, than it is in the case of Prosecco, where sometimes it the terroir is like steel tanks, mm-hmm. if I may be candid. <laughs> but regardless, like I am I'm sympathetic to the notion that to some extent people many people may not even really associate Prosecco with Italy or even or specifically with the Veneto where it's made. But I do think that there is all the more reason why you can see why these producers are perhaps sensitive about protecting their place name because there is some risk that if if they if Prosecco gets out into the wilderness or into the wild like that, then who's to stop anyone from making a thing they call Prosecco from any grape and selling it and being like, hey, this is our Prosecco in the same way that someone might say, hey, here's our Chardonnay or here's our Pinot Noir. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think some of this stuff is a little bit silly, but I do kind of understand the attempt to at least protect the thing that is most closely associated with the area of production, which is, as it turns out, the word Prosecco, and let the name of the grape be damned. And I, I got one final point here, Zach, and I'm Please. not the first person to bring this up or, or highlight it, so someone smarter than me um, first noticed this. But, you know, in, I think it was either 2020 or 2021, where uh, we see the first rollout of um, Rosé Prosecco. Yeah. And... If we're talking about authenticity here, one might assume, I don't speak fluent Italian, but one might assume that you would keep it Italian, you call it rosato. You wouldn't call it rosé, the French term. Unless, 
I don't know, maybe you wanted to profit off of another very financially lucrative, wildly popular style of wine? I don't know. That's my question. Tim, I find the whole allegation shocking. (laughs) Will not not give it any dignity. There was no, there was no, there was no allegation. (laughs) Maybe insinuation. Let's call it that. Insinuation. Uh, I'm just saying. I'm just. I'm seeing the facts as as they're in front of me. That is all we do on the podcast. Tim, appreciate it as always, folks. If you have questions, comments, ideas for episodes, thoughts on prosecco, podcast at vinepair.com is the place to reach us. You can also find us on social media. We're out there. And uh, Tim, appreciate it, and I'll talk to you on Friday. Cheers, Zach. Get well soon, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.